Well, today we are, um, we're back into the book of James. James chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 13. I want to set that up, though, by giving us a little context and a little background. It seems like today, maybe even more and more, people in the world really, either they, they believe that they really are smart, really intelligent, or else they are on a, on a path where they want to just become smarter and smarter, more intelligent. Uh, and I, I'm not sure what standard people use to decide whether or not they really are smart, but it seems like everybody's got a different standard of what it means to be smart or intelligent. But there, regardless of what people think about how smart they are, there's got to be a comparison made. But it seems like there's this quest where everybody wants more and more knowledge. There's this phrase out there that says knowledge is power. So it seems like the relationship there is I want to get more power or more influence. And so my way to do that is I need to get more knowledge. Because the more knowledge I have, maybe the more power or influence I'll have. Uh, I've seen it uh, many times. Sometimes if someone is really insecure, they may try to hoard their knowledge because they know that gives them influence. And the, the, the more knowledge they have that someone else doesn't have, that gives them more influence. And that's all different contexts throughout our culture. But here's the problem with gaining more and more knowledge. There's a, a, it's an unintentional or else maybe a potential. That's a better way to, to put it. It's a potentially harmful side effect. Because you can get more and more knowledge. That's not usually a challenge. But you could get more knowledge but you could completely lack wisdom because today we're talking about wisdom and peace and the relationship between wisdom and peace but in the culture just from observation you look around and it looks like a lot of people want more and more knowledge but in their quest for knowledge they've forgotten about wisdom and let me try to to uh, distinguish those two knowledge is the acquisition of information, okay? I'm gaining more information on a given subject. Wisdom, though, is the proper application or uh, appropriation of knowledge. So I can have knowledge but not wisdom, which means I may have the, the information, but I don't know how to use it in the best way. So I, I have knowledge but no wisdom. Does that make sense? So... Uh, in other words, I, I can increase my knowledge on a particular subject by reading available books or articles on that subject which have been written uh, presumably by, by people who are experts in that field. But in order to possess wisdom in a particular area, then I would not need to just read books or articles. I would need to then speak to people who have practical experience in that area who have also demonstrated a high level of success or achievement in that area. So it's one thing to be able to read something in a book and possess the knowledge, but if you can't put that to good use, 
then it's not really useful. And therefore, you don't have the wisdom that's needed to use that knowledge. Let me give you an example. If I wanted to learn more about football, there's, a, I mean, there's about an endless supply of resources I could read or go to to give me information on the subject. I mean, there's no shortage of information I could get. I could go to, you could go to uh, the Internet and just search football fundamentals. And there's probably going to be thousands and thousands and thousands of books and resources to read about the game of football. But if I wanted to know about the application of all that knowledge, then I wouldn't want to just read the books. I would want to visit some places or some people that had demonstrated success in the game of football. In other words, I'd get in my truck and I would drive maybe to Tuscaloosa or maybe up to Clemson. Or maybe if I wanted to go like really out there, I might drive up to Foxborough, Massachusetts, talk to Bill Belichick and the Patriots. They've demonstrated a, a lot of success in the game of football on the, on the pro level. But that way I could actually talk to some folks who have put that information to use. Okay? Uh, so I'd have conversations with coaching staff at these schools or at this program, or I'd do some personal observation of those teams in action, so I'd get to see and hear from folks who are actually doing it what it looks like, how you go about taking the knowledge, because the knowledge is not uh, unique to one particular program, right? In the game of football, everybody's pretty much using the same fundamentals, but some people are using them better than others, right? So I wouldn't want to just read. I want to go talk to these people who have demonstrated success. But let me just tell you, here's where I would not go if I wanted to find out about football. Now, hold on a minute. I don't, I, now, I, y'all are laughing because I know what you're thinking. But I, you're not giving me the benefit of the doubt because just hear me out. Here's where I would not go. There's a little town called Ypsilanti, Michigan. It's eight miles east of Ann Arbor. There's a school there called Eastern Michigan University, the Eagles. Now, I would not be interested in visiting the Eagles because in the 44 seasons that they have played Division I football, they have managed to have the historically the lowest winning percentage of all the 130 teams that play Division I football. 0. .308 winning percentage. That means they lose twice, more than twice as many games as they win over a, a period of 44 seasons. It's the worst in Division I football. They have not demonstrated success in the game of football. But see, on a practical level... That's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Because I'm quite sure the coaching staff at Eastern Michigan has not, well, I'm, make, I'm making the presumption, that they have knowledge of the game of football. It's not like they're completely ignorant of what they're there to do and how the game is played and how it's successfully done. It's just they're not demonstrating a high level of success. So there are people around 
who would be more advantageous for me to talk to than that staff because there's other people who have done it far better. Okay? So the difference is this. It's one thing to know a lot about a subject. It's something entirely different to be able to apply that knowledge in the most appropriate way. Okay? And so what James is going to tell us today Who is wise? How do we find the wisdom that God would have us to have that would be most beneficial to us and glorifying to him? So let's look at Scripture. James chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 13. We're going to go all the way to verse 3 in chapter 4. Here's what God says to us. Verse 13, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it's earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you don't have. So you commit murder. You're envious and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Heavenly Father, I pray today that you'll make your word clear to us. Speak clearly to us by your Spirit. I pray you'd open our hearts and open our minds, open our ears, focus our attention. There's truth here for us today. And I pray we would receive it for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. There's three things in this text today that I think are, uh, well, I don't think. This is what God says. This is very straightforward how we can first of all get the wisdom we need and then apply the wisdom we have uh, we want to make sure first of all that we're uh, getting the right source of wisdom the first thing that that the text tells us today uh, in the first few verses demonstrate your wisdom demonstrate your wisdom number one if you're wise in understanding you're going to demonstrate that by your humble actions if you look at the very beginning of this text the question's asked. It's almost rhetorical, but it's not because he gives you the, the answer right after that. Who among you is wise? Well, then you're going to show that. How are you going to show it? Look at verse 13. Good behavior, deeds of gentleness of wisdom. So there are some behaviors that demonstrate a lack of wisdom and humility, but these are the ones that show your wisdom is from above. And I'm going to get to this in a minute, but I want you to remember this one 
important fact. Wisdom from above only comes if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're going we're to circle all the way around this text. When we get to the end, we're going to see it all come together that if you can't put the cart before the horse. So if you're here today and you're thinking, well, I'm wise, but you don't have a relationship with Christ, you're fooling yourself because you've already missed the first step in getting wisdom from above, which makes you wise in the literal sense in how God sees it. If we don't have a relationship with Jesus, your chances of having real wisdom are 0.0%. Because wisdom from the world, as we're going to see in just a moment, is not real wisdom. Okay? So step one, believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. Jesus Christ came to this earth and lived a sinless life which none of us is able to do. He willingly allowed himself to be beaten and arrested and beaten and tortured and killed, and he died for our sins in our place on a cross. Then he rose victoriously, defeating death, He ascended into heaven. He's in heaven now at his rightful place at the right hand of the throne of God where here's what he's doing constantly, praying for us. The Bible calls it making intercession. That means constantly Jesus is our advocate before the Father, our mediator. Paul said to Timothy, there is one mediator between man and God, and that is the man Christ Jesus. There's, There's one way... To heaven. That's the gospel. That's the truth of the gospel. So if we want wisdom, that's where we start. That's where we start. We start with Jesus. So James tells us by the Holy Spirit that if we really have wisdom and have understanding in a godly sense, then we're going to demonstrate that because of our good behavior, the deeds that we do in gentleness or humility of wisdom. And then That is a one-verse explanation. Now, why is it only one verse? You may be asking, well, wouldn't you give us a little bit more detail on that, James? A little bit more description? No. Why? Because it's so straightforward. It shouldn't take a lot to explain that. If you have wisdom, if you have understanding from God, then here's how you're going to demonstrate it. You're going to live like Jesus. Now, can any of you live 100% all the time like Jesus? No. We cannot, because we still struggle with this curse of sin. Even if we're delivered from the penalty of sin, there's still the presence of sin all around us. And so we may sin from time to time, even though it's our goal in, in the power of Christ not to sin, because we want to honor Him, live for Him. Okay, So godly wisdom is going to be demonstrated by how we live, and that should be straightforward. But then he goes straight in verse 14 and says, let me tell you about the attitudes and the behaviors that demonstrate a lack of wisdom or humility. And you look at verse 14, he says, but, contrast, right off the bat, if you have bitter jealousy or selfish ambition, also it could be translated as strife, conflict, in your heart, 
Don't be arrogant and lie against the truth. Well, what does that mean exactly? That means that these qualities don't reflect godly wisdom and humility, which means it would take a real arrogant, dishonest person to display those types of characteristics and yet still claim to be wise. It doesn't work that way. If you claim to have godly wisdom, then that godly wisdom is going to be shown in your life. Does that make sense? You're going to live a certain way. You're going to act a certain way. You're going to think a certain way. You're going to have certain priorities. You're going to treat people in a certain manner. And so everything about you at some point over time is going to be observed to look more and more like Jesus. That's going to demonstrate that you have godly wisdom and understanding. If you don't demonstrate those things, guess what? Either you're out of fellowship with God and being very disobedient and need to repent and go back to Him, or you're not a Christian. Now, is that strong language? Well, yeah. But I'm just... You can't meet the Jesus I met and act the same way. If you met Jesus, if He totally transformed who you are, how can you keep acting like you don't know Him? Y'all hearing what I'm saying? This is, this is serious business. People walk around this culture in our workplaces and our schools and just in the community all the time. And they say, well, do you know Jesus? Well, yeah, I go to this church down here. That's not what I asked you. Do you know Jesus? Yeah, I walked the aisle when I was sitting. No, that's not what I asked you. Do you know Jesus? Do you follow Jesus? I'm not asking if you did something or if you go somewhere. I'm asking, has Jesus transformed your life? Has he changed who you are? None of these, all these other things are, are symptoms of an issue. So if, if you are a Christian, then yes, you should want to go to church and be with God's people. If you're a Christian, then yes, at some point, you would have heard the gospel and believed the gospel and proclaimed that in a public way through either profession or baptism or both. You would have done that. But those are after the fact. So when someone asks, do you know Jesus, I'm not looking for... Well, I go to this church, or I know this pastor, or I walk this aisle. or I, That's not what I'm asking. Do you know Jesus Christ? Does he live inside of you? Does his life transform your life? Does his way of life inform your actions? Do his attitudes become your attitudes? His priorities become your priorities? You see how this fits together? This is godly wisdom. And see, true humility, when that, that word gentleness in verse 13, good behavior, his deeds, in the gentleness of wisdom, that humility, that's the idea of being humble. See, this Christian humility, it comes from understanding our position as sinful people in relation to, in relation to the, uh, the glorious and uh, majesty of God. So we have to understand who we are in light of who God is. God is holy and righteous and just and perfect in all His attributes. So when we look at the glory and the majesty of God and we see ourselves as sinful humanity, we recognize how unable we are in and of ourselves to achieve spiritual fulfillment or to even chart our own course in the world. Do you understand that... If we, are, if we are alone, if we are without Christ, that we, may, we may be able to exist and, 
and do okay in, in terms of the world, but in God's economy, we can't even know what direction to go in life if we're apart from Jesus. That's how important, it's how fundamental and it is to know Jesus. I mean, you, you just read the book of Proverbs. Just read the book of Proverbs. There's so much we can learn about God and about the importance, the necessity of knowing Him and following Him. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 2.9, you will discern righteousness and justice and equity in every good course. Proverbs 2.20, you will walk in the way of good men and keep the paths of righteousness. See, that's just three little verses. Apart from God, we can't have wisdom, which means we can't have peace. And we can't chart our course in life apart from a relationship with God. What are the characteristics of worldly wisdom? Look at verse 15. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above. It's earthly, natural, or, or unspiritual, demonic, evil, devilish, diabolical. And then he goes on to say in verse 16 where jealousy and selfish ambition also could be translated strife, where those things exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Disorder. God is not a God of confusion. It's not who He is. When you have selfish ambition, when you have self-interest, selfishness, disorder, confusion disturbance of the normal functions of life, every evil thing, that's what kind of community exists where there's a lack of godly wisdom. I mean, turn on the news. Pick a day, pick a time, pick a channel. Just turn on the TV. You know what I see? I see disorder. I see chaos. I see evil things. You know why? It's not rocket science. It's because the world at large lacks godly wisdom. You know why? Because they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, should demonstrate to the church what a monumental need there is for the gospel to go out of here through us into the community to people, to tell people about Jesus. That's our job, people. That's what, we're, that's what we're here to do, is to go talk to people about Jesus, share the gospel, befriend people who are not like us, who don't believe like us, who don't look, act, smell, think like us, but need Jesus. And we take this truth, and we share it. We be a friend. In the name of Jesus, we be a friend. Verse 17. Look at the contrast between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. The wisdom from above is first pure. And after pure, genuine, then look, six more characteristics that all they fall under. It's almost like a description of the purity of godly wisdom. Peaceable, gentle, reasonable. Reasonable also means uh, 
willing to yield. In other words, I'm not always fighting for my way, my right. It's, I'm, I'm reasonable, full of mercy, full of good fruit. In other words, I'm demonstrating godly wisdom. Unwavering, I'm, which means I'm, I'm impartial, I'm free from prejudice. Without hypocrisy, that goes back to the purity, I'm, I'm genuine without deception. These are the characteristics of the kind of wisdom that God gives to his children. So if we want to be wise and understanding in God's eyes, not in the world's eyes, then we've got to start with our relationship with Jesus, which only comes through hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, trusting everything into Christ's hands on our behalf, all the work he's done for us, and believing that beyond a shadow of a doubt, by faith, Jesus Christ is my only source of life, forgiveness, salvation, everything. Hear and believe the gospel. Repent. Repent and believe the gospel. That's how we find godly wisdom. James is clearly trying to say two things here. True wisdom produces good works, and true wisdom produces humility. That's just number one. Demonstrate your wisdom. Number two, make peace. Make peace. Verse 18, the seed whose fruit is righteousness, literally the fruit of righteousness, is sown in peace by those who make peace. In other words, if you sow peace on earth, you will reap righteousness in heaven. If you make it your goal to make peace, and by the way, making peace is different from keeping peace. Keeping peace is just, well, I just want to avoid conflict at all costs. So I'm just going to do whatever I can. I just hate, I hate confrontation. I hate conflict. So I'm just going to do whatever I can to avoid that, and I'm going to keep the peace. And sometimes that means sacrificing the truth. And that doesn't work. Make peace. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 9, he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers are called sons of God because they are behaving just like their father. They're making peace. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8 says, Don't be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. If you sow peace on earth, you will reap peace and righteousness in heaven. How do we make peace? How did Jesus make peace? He went to the cross. He sacrificed himself. How do we make peace? If any of you would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Jesus said that. Make peace. If you don't have wisdom, you're not going to be able to make peace. Number three, avoid conflict. This is the first part of chapter four, uh, verses one through three. Avoid conflict. The questions asked, where do these quarrels and conflicts come from? The, the, the words literally in the text are wars and fightings. Where do these things come from, these wars, these conflicts? Where do they come from? 
They come from our pleasures. And this is a rhetorical question because the answer is given. Isn't the source your pleasures? Your desires based on your sinfulness? They're waging war within your members. In other words, not just the members of your own body as in you have an internal conflict between what you think you want and what God says you need. Anybody been there? Well, I'd like to do this, but God says, well, uh, you need to do this instead. Well, I don't want to do that. I want to do what I want to do. And what does God say? One of two things. Either I didn't ask for your opinion, do what I say, or, okay, see how that works for you. I'll be here when you realize you're wrong. I'll be right here waiting on you. Where do wars and fightings come? Do you realize all of our conflict comes from going in a direction other than the one that God says to go in? Ultimately, that's where it comes from. Anytime we depart from what God says to do, that's when problems happen. Pleasures that wage war in your members. So not just internal conflict, but even in the body, even in uh, the community of believers, there can be conflict when? When there's disagreement about what to do or how to think or how do those things happen? Well, usually it comes from the fact that we're all sinners. That's where we start. And then maybe some of us, you know, I've been in, in situations where personal opinions or desires may try to trump what God says to do. And, you know, hopefully that doesn't happen often. But... That can cause conflict. Anytime people want to do something that God says not to do, or God says something to do clearly and then people don't want to do that, then that can produce conflict, wars, fightings, quarrels, conflicts. And, and by the way, this demonstrates the need for peace, making peace. That's why James goes in this direction immediately following that statement about sowing peace. Reaping righteousness because you've got fightings and quarrels and wars and conflicts among you. And where do they come from? They come from not following Jesus because we're following our own sinful desires and pleasures. And so that source of conflict, there's a word that's used in the Greek text called hedon. Uh, you know what word comes from that in English? Hedonism. You know what hedonism is? There's an did you know if you watch the travel channel there's an entire resort in Jamaica called hedonism You know what that is selfish pleasure it means I don't care what anybody else thinks says or wants it's all about me and what I want That's what's happening here that's the source of conflict. If, if just, just think what would happen. Look at all the people in this room. If every single one of us cared nothing about anything except for what I want. So every one of us was so individualistic and selfish that we didn't care what anybody else in the room thought. We just want what I want. Everybody had that attitude. I want what I want. Everybody else can be wrong. 
Do you realize the chaos, confusion, and conflict, and wars, and fightings that we'd have? That's, that's what the text is talking about. Hypothetical examples of conflict caused by these selfish, sinful desires. James presents a couple. He says, you lust or you desire and you don't have. So what do you do? Well, you kill somebody to get what you want. The second one says, you envy. You can't get what you want. So what do you do? You fight and you quarrel. You start a war get what you want. That is a direct result of ungodly wisdom. You remember at the end of chapter 3 what he said? Where you have jealousy and selfish ambition, it's wickedness and every evil thing, disorder, confusion, every evil thing. What are some reasons for not having what we think we want? Well, the text tells us in verse 3, you don't have because you don't ask. You, or at the end of verse 2, you, you don't ask, have because you don't ask. You do ask, but you don't receive anything because you ask with wrong motives. The word there means wickedly. So you, you're asking wickedly. Anybody ever done that? Here's, some, here's my personal example from, uh, from years ago. And it's pretty, it's, it's, it's pretty relevant considering what's been happening this past week. You'll understand when I say this. God, please let me win the lottery. I'll do good stuff with it, I promise. $1.6 billion. I'll pay off every church debt in Lexington, Aiken County. I'll give to the missionaries. I'll only use a little bit for myself and everything I want. And you know what God says? Well, could you meet me halfway and go buy a ticket first? That's not what he said. And, and by the way, I'm a firm believer that God only trusts resources to people he knows he can trust with them. Which explains why I don't win the lottery. Which is another moment for self-reflection. Because maybe I got work to do in my heart because he can't trust me with abundant resources. You ask, but you don't receive because you ask wickedly. You ask wickedly because your motives for asking are sinful and selfish. You only ask to satisfy your own sinful pleasures. See, God gave James a word here to pass on to the church, to us. It's one thing to know some stuff, but it's something entirely different to be able to put that knowledge to good use. And by good use, I mean godly use. It's not enough to just know what the Bible says. We've got to do what the Bible says. We can win every Bible trivia contest known to man and still be desperately sinful. The Word has got to get from here 
to hear. To hear. I've got to, I've got to put it in action. It's not going to get to action until it gets from my head to my heart. It's not going to get from my head to my heart until Jesus Christ runs my life. Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. He said, continue in the things you've learned and the things you've become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you've known the sacred writings. Talking about Scripture. You've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom of, that leads to salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. That's where wisdom comes from. Wisdom comes from salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no shortcut. There's no other way to get there. See, the primary purpose of the Word of God is to reveal Christ to us, to point us to heaven which gives us the wisdom from heaven, leads us to salvation. So this, this gospel truth, this, all this word here that we have, it's got one primary purpose. It's pointing us to our need for Jesus. We all need Jesus. You say, well, I need this, 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 or this. Okay, well, back up. Your first need is Jesus. Every, everybody, there's nobody different. There's nobody unique. Everybody's first need is Jesus. Let's pray.